whisper on the wind, a ripple on the water. Tales told around the fire become the myths and legends of empires. How do you think you would stuff an elephant in the refrigerator? How? You would open the door, you'd stuff the elephant in, and you'd shut the door. How do you think you'd stuff an giraffe in the refrigerator? How? You'd open the door, you'd take the elephant out, put the giraffe in, and shut the door. Well, good morning. Welcome to Renaissance, and it's good to have you here this morning. My name is Chris, and we are launching a new series today called Saga. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to uh, let you know you can go to our website at renaissancechurch.org, click on messages there. You can watch, listen to, download, share all of our series. It's just a resource there for you. There's also a discussion guide for you. And uh, during service today and throughout the week, uh, we have posted the message notes online at this link at renaissancechurch.org forward slash notes. And so if you, if you, your personality, you like to follow along, you can follow along with me today. Or if you're like, what was that verse or what was that point uh, that Chris talked about last weekend? Uh, it'll be available for you as well online. So resources for you. Saga. Story has been a central part of cultures uh, over the span of time. Uh, archaeologists have discovered these cave drawings in Australia where uh, uh, they've started to construct, you know, how these early Aborigines uh, developed stories within their culture. And what they've discovered is not only did they draw or paint these, these epic stories on the, the, the side of rock, but what they pieced together is, is they had this visual depiction of a story, but then they would have people singing as long as someone drawing, and then people would be dancing while people were singing while someone's drawing, and then someone would be telling the story. It's like the, like the first Broadway show ever, right? It was, was, was happening. The Greeks and Romans were epic storytellers. You know, Herodotus, the, uh, the first historian who started to capture these moments of epic Greece history was, yes, a historian, but he was also a storyteller. And experts aren't sure what was actual history and what was his version of history. Voltaire called him the father of history and the father of lies. The Vikings, they had their sagas. And during this one specific kind of point in time, they were writing down all of their conquests. Brave men getting in their ships, sailing around, discovering lands, discovering new people groups, discovering new cultures. And they started to capture this moment of history in what they called sagas. And what's interesting is their sagas about kings and mighty warriors, but also you had some Benedictine monks that started to capture this time period as well. Story, there's something about it that captures our heart, engages our mind. My wife and I had the opportunity to go see uh, the Broadway uh, show Big Fish uh, several weeks ago. And uh, 
I found myself sitting there in my seat, and if you're not sure about the, or heard the storyline of, of Big Fish, it's about uh, a man named Edward and his son, Will. And I found myself during the first act just being the consumer of a Broadway show, right? Have you ever found yourself in that seat? You're sit sitting there, you're consuming it. It's like, oh, the show's good, the music's engaging. You're looking around the audience a little bit, maybe critiquing a little bit because, hey, we're all critics at some point. Right? And so you're consuming the show. Something happened into the second act where I found myself being transported into the storyline. It was powerful. And I started to put myself into Edward's shoes. And I started to realize the tension between Edward and his son, Will. And I started thinking through my childhood, which was great, but the tension between father and son. And then I started thinking through now me as a dad and the, just the tension of you know, raising kids. And then you saw this divide between Edward and Will, and it made me pause and go, I, I never want that divide to happen between me and my daughters, and what do I need to do to make sure that divide never happens? And then you see Edward, health really start to fail, and it, I found myself in that moment going, yeah, life is frail, and one day I'm going to have to really deal with that with my dad. Then you see this love between father and son. Oh, it was a love with tension in it. It was a love that was confused at times. It was a love uh, that was unending. Even in moments where you could almost sense that that love was going to just dissipate. And that, as the final kind of uh, curtain closed and everyone erupted in applause, I found myself thinking through that whole experience, how I came in as consumer and how the story captured my heart and my soul, and it became such an introspective moment of my life. The power of story, it connects. The power of story, it compels. The power of story causes us to reflect. The power of story moves within our soul. And that's why it's been a foundational piece since the dawn of time. Here's what I know. Everyone, everyone has a story. We all have, have a story. Now, you might not like your story. You might not think your story's exciting. In fact, if you ever find yourself sitting with someone and they're telling you their story, I don't know if it's just me. I don't think it's just me. I find myself at, at moments going, man, my story's not that, that good. Like my version is like kind of vanilla. My story, no one wants to hear my story. That's the story. Do you have a friend like that? I mean, their story is epic. Their story is intriguing. Their story is exciting. My story's not that good. Everyone has a story and it has the potential to be epic. It really does. Your story has the potential to be 
epic. My story has the potential to be epic if, and we're going to get to the if today. Eventually, we'll get there. Over this series, we're going to be looking at a story of a guy named Josiah. Maybe you've never heard of Josiah before. Maybe you've studied about Josiah. But we're going to be looking at Josiah's story and how it intersects with our story. And I tell you, there's going to be moments along the way that I think you might potentially find yourself going, yeah, that's where I am. And maybe today, you're going to say, yep, that's where I am in this storyline called my life, called your life. But to set up Josiah's story, we need to uh, go through some history, because I think the history is going to really help give context and depth to Josiah's story. And we only get a snapshot of Josiah. There's not a lot written about him. But I think this history will really help uh, as we get into the story of Josiah. So let's start at the beginning, because the beginning is a great place to start. So let's start with God. And uh, God created heavens, the earth, everything in the earth, and then God created man and woman. So he creates, man and woman get together, they have kids, their kids have kids, their kids and their kids and their kids have kids, and the earth starts to be populated. And all of a sudden, one day, there's a guy named Abraham. Maybe you've heard of Abraham, Father Abraham, and God taps Abraham on the shoulder, and he says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I want you to know your story is going to be epic. Your, your descendants are going to be that of the stars, that numerous. I mean, that's a cool storyline. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the storyline of Abraham's descendants is going to be as numerous as the stars starts to come true. Jacob had 12 sons, and what happens within 12 siblings, especially boys? Jealousy kind of emerges. Why? Because one, uh, one was closer to dad than the others. And so the 11, who were so jealous of the one, decided to do what brothers do best, um, Take him, grab him, beat him, and throw him down a well, right? That's a great storyline. And then they realized, uh, we can't let him die down there, so what else could we do? So they sold him into slavery, and he is shipped to Egypt. And Joseph has another cool storyline, because as he's a, now a slave, and he gets thrown in jail for a period of time, God kind of taps him on the shoulder, says, hey, Joseph, I have this epic storyline for you. And Joseph finds himself gaining a position of power and influence in Pharaoh's kingdom. He becomes important. Famine hits the land. Joseph's brothers comes to Egypt because there's famine and they're trying to get food. And God reunites the brothers like only God can do. And the brothers stay. All 12 brothers now together, the 12 tribes. And there they live. And these 12 tribes start to grow into a nation. And hundreds of years go by, and all of a sudden, the new Pharaoh looks at this nation that's forming on his footsteps. And guess what? He gets worried. So he does what every good Pharaoh does. He just says, oh, you're now mine. You're slaves. So they become slaves. And for 400 years, this forming nation that we call Israel are slaves. 400 years, they're slaves. 
one day, God taps a guy named Moses on the shoulders. He says, hey, Moses, I want you to go and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, nope. And God goes, no, really, you need to go. And Moses becomes the reluctant hero. Every great storyline, right, has the reluctant hero. Moses goes. He leads God's people out of Egypt. And at this point, experts think that, uh, uh, that this nation uh, numbered somewhere around 1.5 to 2 million people. It's a massive nation. And for 400 years, they've been slaves, and now they're free. For 400 years, they've been told what to do. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have a vote. They couldn't even think for themselves. And now they're free, and they find themselves asking the m- most important question, now what? What do we do now? So God taps Moses on the shoulders and he says, hey, Moses, we're going to do this different. We're going to do this different than any other nation that you've ever seen or experienced or heard of. This nation is going to be governed by law. Moses, you're going to be the first judge. But God is now king, governed by law, and God's going to use judges and prophets to help guide his people. And this form of government, this new form of government, would not be seen again until the American Revolution. When all of a sudden this group of people said, no, 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 we don't want a king or a queen over us, and they revolted, and they fought for their freedom, and they said, we're going to govern this country by law. For 500 years, this is how this nation called Israel governed themselves. And it worked. And it was different than every other nation around them. But then all of a sudden, they started looking at other nations. And all of a sudden, the people started saying, hey, that nation has a king. That nation has a king. That nation has a king. We want a king. So they went and they said, hey, hey, we want a king. And God sent a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel came and said, no, 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 no. You don't want a king. And they said, no, we want a king. And, and Samuel's like, no, you, you don't want a king. You've got God and you've got his, his law or his words. And they govern you. That's, that's, that's all you need. They're like, we want a king. And Samuel's like, why, why do you want a king? They're like, well, if we had a king, we'd have a castle. And we would have flags and banners and we'd have nation pride and we'd have a mighty army and we would have a dragon. Maybe not a dragon. But that would be cool. But we would have a mighty nation led by a mighty king. And Samuel's like, you don't want a king. So they said, well, why don't we want a king, Samuel? They're like, Samuel said, because kings do what kings do. If you guys get a king, that king's going to act like a king. And he's going to raise taxes. And he's going to force your boys into his army. And he's going to send your boys in his army to wars all across the land to gain land for himself. And if you have a king, he's going to leverage his power and his authority. You don't want a king. Let's pause there in this brief history leading up to Josiah. We're still going there. Here's what I know. All of us, when we think about kings, 
we all have a part of us inside of us where we want to be king. Don't we? You think about a king, two essential components of being king is they're autonomous and they're unaccountable. And there's something within us that want to be autonomous and unaccountable. That's why we sit there and we go, well, if I was boss, if I was in control, if I made all the decisions, it'd be so much better. If I ran the company, if I didn't have to report to a board, if I was king, I can make the decisions. But yet there's another part within us that understands that absolute power or power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we know that intuitively within us and we know that from history. And guess what God knows? He knows the condition of the human heart. And that's why God, God through Samuel would say, no, you don't want a king because kings aren't accountable to anyone and kings are autonomous. And a king will lead you down a path that doesn't head towards a relationship with God. People kept on saying, we want a king, we want a king. So God said, fine. If you want a king, I'll give you a king. And the first king, his name was Saul. And uh, Saul looked like a king, acted like a king, talked like a king, made decisions like a king, smelled like a king, however king smelled like. He was a king. But he was a horrible king. And so God dismissed Saul. And God said, let me find your king. He's not going to look like a king. He's not going to talk like a king. He, he's going to be a different type of king, but his heart will be for me. And so God finds David. And uh, if you're from a Jewish faith, you know King David is the king. You know, it's the star of David. Jerusalem's the city of David. I mean, David was a mighty king. And not only was he a mighty king, his heart beat for God and he followed God and he loved God and he served God, but yet he had this list because he was still king and he's human and his decisions grieved God and his decisions angered God and he made decisions that he himself would walk away from God for periods of time. He was still human. And then David passed off the kingdom to his son Solomon, and Solomon was a great king. Solomon built the temple of God. Solomon loved God and served God and followed God, and his heart was for God, but yet Solomon was still human, and he had his list of issues, sin, darkness, that grieved God and angered God and disappointed God. And then Solomon handed his kingdom off to one of his sons, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam wasn't as great as David or Solomon. And Rehoboam decided that he was going to keep all the taxes that Solomon had put into place to build the temple. Now the temple's built. And he decided, oh, there's a lot of money. He was a king. He did what 
kings do. And so he kept the taxes in place and he started showing favoritism to a few of the tribes. And because of his leadership and him just being a king, the kingdom split. And so we have now is Israel, which is the north, and Judah, which is the south. If you spend any time in the books, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and even into the prophets, this is where it gets a little confusing. Because all of a sudden, if you miss the kingdom splitting part of the storyline, all of a sudden it starts talking about, well, so-and-so was a king of Israel, or so-and-so was a king of Judah. Well, this is what happens. The kingdom splits. Rehoboam becomes king of Judah. Ten tribes go north, two tribes go south. And the Bible also uses the word Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah, to describe which kingdom they're talking about. Well, out of the 19 kings of uh, Israel, uh, none of them did good. It's not a great percentage. All 19 were evil. And uh, right in 722 to 720 BC, uh, Assyria comes in and just says, we're done with you. And they literally wipe out the northern kingdom. It's what's referred to as the ten lost tribes. And they take all the people and they just bring them back and they just integrate them into their cultures, what the Syrians did. It's one way to get rid of an entire people group, just integrate them into your culture. Well, Judah was a little better. Twelve were evil, eight were good. That's a better percentage. But still in 589 to 586 BC, the, uh, the Babylonian Empire comes in and does the same thing. Takes them all into exile, integrates them into their people group. So we find Josiah. Josiah is part of Judah. So he's in that line. Fifteen kings were before Josiah. Four kings were after Josiah. Josiah was the last good of the eight good kings. He was the last good one. And if you're a study, uh, if, you're, if you like history... Josiah reigned between 640 and 608 BC. And this is, during his reign, was right at the end of the great Assyrian empire. The last great Assyrian king, uh, he, uh, his kingdom comes, or his reign comes to the end right in the middle of Josiah's reign. The next few kings of Assyria were really weak, a lot of in strife, and then all of a sudden the great Babylonian empire comes together with many different tribes coming together and they rise up. So this is the period of history that Josiah is reigning in. So we go to uh, 2 Kings and know that 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel tell this, the storyline of the kings. But we also have these two books called 1 and 2 Chronicles. And the writer of 1 and 2 Chronicles tells the same story of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, but the writer comes at it from a different perspective and we learn different insights or different pieces of information. So it's important to study both accounts. Like Josiah, we find him in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. But also, we have a third perspective during this reign of the kings. It's called the prophets. If you've ever read any of the prophets of the Old Testament, I mean, basically the prophets are screaming all the time. You know, God's mad. That, that was the one storyline. God's mad follow God, repent. And so we have the third perspective of the prophets. And so we're going to see all of these perspectives over the next four weeks into the life of Josiah. So this is what we discover in 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Diah, and she was from Boscoth. Now, what's great about 
uh, these books in the Bible is when we get introduced to a new king, we discover some key important information. It's kind of the same rhythm. We discover the name of the king, Josiah. We discover how old he was when he becomes king. We, we uh, uh, find out what kingdom he's leading. Was it Israel north, Judah south? So here they say Jerusalem, which now we know that Jerusalem is the southern kingdom, Judah. How many years did he reigns? 31 years. And then we get some family information. The second piece of information we find out is whether they did evil or right or evil or good in the eyes of God. And so in verse 2, we find out that he does right in the eyes of, of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father's, father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And then in verse 3, we kind of leap many years. All of a sudden, the writer of, of 2 Kings says, well, in the 18th year of his reign. So we miss 18 years. You know, what's going on? Well, this is why if you ever study into the kings, you need to put... First and Second Kings beside First uh, and Second Chronicles with the prophets because there we get a better storyline of what's going on. So we go to Second Chronicles, and guess what? We find out some of the same information. He's eight years old. Jerusalem, thirty-one years. He, uh, the, the writer of Chronicles leaves out the kind of the family history pieces of information. We get to verse two. He did right in the eyes of the Lord, and then in verse three he writes something significant in the eighth year. Ah, second Kings, they jump to the 18th year when Josiah would have been 26. The chronicler says, no, in the eighth year, Josiah is now 16. And that might, that might feel young. When I, when I think about you know, an eight-year-old, that's basically the age of my daughter, my youngest. I'm like, her being king, it'd be hilarious and tragic all at once, right? It's like, right? Just think about it. It was like one of those pictures. And, uh, but as you start thinking through history, especially during you know, this time period and earlier, this was not uncommon. King Tut, which was much earlier than this, he was nine. The great Ramesses, the great, right? He was 14 when he became prince uh, regent, and he was in his latter teens when he became pharaoh, and so Josiah becomes king at eight, and now we get a picture into what was going on. Now, we're not sure now what happened in the first eight years of his reign, but in the eighth year, we discover something so significant to his storyline. This is what is written. He began to seek the God of his father, David. Now, this is critical, absolutely critical. You see, the, the spiritual landscape that this nation found itself living in. I mean, when they were slaves in Egypt and when they uh, broke away from captivity, I mean, the, it was this polytheistic religious landscape. Egypt had all of their gods, many of whom were tied to different parts of creation, the sun god, the moon god, the water god, the tree god. I mean, they had all these gods. Ancient Sumerians had uh, a polytheistic uh, religious view that, that, that experts think that really po populated a lot of the different nations around during that time. The Syrians had a polytheistic view. The Babylonians had a polytheistic view. And then we start thinking through that law that God gives to Moses when he says, no, 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 no. I am the Lord your God, and you will have no other gods before me. 
I think the fine print was God saying, hey, I know, look around. All these other nations with their mighty kings, they have all these other gods and they're worshiping creation. I want you to worship me, the creator. But what happened when the kingdom split and kings started to do what kings started to do? They wanted to be unaccountable and autonomous. And if you're worshiping a God who's creator, the God, you're now not unaccountable and you're now not autonomous. And so all of these other polytheistic cultures with their polytheistic religions started to come into Israel. And they started worshiping all of these other gods. And Josiah was born to a dad who was king for two years, who did evil in the eyes of God because he allowed all of these other cult religions to be part of his kingdom. And Josiah was born into a family where his grandfather did evil in the eyes of God, and he allowed all of these polytheistic cult religions to be part of his kingdom. But something happened when he was eight. We're not sure what. What led him to the point to seek God did he sit there one day looking out of all of these other type of cults, people worshiping Baal and the Asherah poles and all of these other religious practices, and did he just go, this is absurd? Maybe. Was there something just internal that God started to work on his heart, and there was this leading, this nudging, this something hard to frame in words that just moved him to seek this God, maybe? Was it storytelling? As Josiah sat on his throne, hearing the stories of old, because David was the mighty warrior, the mighty king. Oh, the stories about David as a soldier and as a leader and as a warrior were epic. And Solomon, his wisdom and his wealth, but yet David and Solomon also loved God and followed God and served God. Perfect? Nope. But their hearts beat in rhythm with God's heart. And I wonder in the storytelling, Josiah started picking up on this God of David. And I wonder, I wonder, if as the stories were being told, because what we know in history, usually we know a lot about how a king comes into power, and we know a lot about how a king leaves power, whether he dies or so someone kills him, which is another form of death, right? We know how his kingdom ends. Sometimes in history, there's sketchy moments in the dash. And I wonder if some of the storytelling was about how this mighty King David handed his throne over to his son Solomon. You see, what we find in 1 
Chronicles chapter 28, we read these words. And I just wonder if this was part of the storytelling culture. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God. This is David in front of the entire assembly of people. I mean, this was the moment of him handing over the power to his son. He says, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And then David says to his son, Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. You see, when we think about seeking God, and as we make our way through different moments in the Bible that talks about seeking God, there's two critical components about seeking God. In uh, First Chronicles, it says that we are to uh, set our mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. It's a both and. There's an intellectual pursuit. But for some of you, you've gotten lost in the intellectual pursuit, and it's never come down to your heart, which is more the emotional connection to God. And it's between the emotional connection to God and our heart, some of those undescribable moments where you feel something, you sense something, and you try to articulate it, and it's so hard to articulate. And the intellectual pursuit, trying to frame this almighty God, it's this conscious decision to say, I need to seek God. And I just assume most of you are here today, no matter where you find in your spiritual journey, because there's this pursuit to seek God, to understand God, to grasp onto God, to know God. We're all at different places. But Josiah took the step to say, you know what? I've heard about this God. I've heard stories about this God the God of my father, which would have been great, 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 great grandfather, David. And there's something different about that God than all these other gods that I see around me. You see, in all of our stories, we have these turning points. And one of the most catalytic turning points for any person is that moment where they turn and say, I need to seek God. What that means is vastly different for all of us, but it's a powerful moment. A good friend and someone I really look up to, her name's Nancy, and uh, uh, throughout the series, we've just asked some people to tell their stories. We didn't go out to find the epic stories. We just asked people to share about their life. And uh, what's fascinating is, as I read through Nancy's story in an email form this week, I had already started working on this whole message about Josiah and seeking God. And all of a sudden, there's this moment where God just says, yes, Josiah's story, Nancy's story. Thousands of years separate them, but oh, how important the step to seek God is. Please watch. 
My parents were married teenagers when I was born, and by the time I was four months old, I was living with my very poor grandparents in some uh, pretty bad places in northern Maine. It really wasn't an ideal situation, and lots of bad things happened to me. There was domestic violence and kids left to their own devices. My life was pretty unpredictable and scary. I was really constantly filled with fear and had nightmares. When I was about seven, one of the many aunts that I was often passed around to took me to a vacation Bible school in southern Maine, where most of my family lived. There were some missionaries there, the Lawsons, who had served in the Philippines. One day they described how a large storm came through their village and they had hidden under the dining room table all night. They'd prayed and sung hymns until they fell asleep. In the morning when they woke up, the house was gone. The roof, the walls, everything but the dining room. I remember thinking, that's what I need. A God who will take care of me and protect me from the bad things that had already happened and that might happen in the future. The Lawsons quoted John 3.16, a verse I knew, but that day it meant something totally different to me. For God so loved Nancy that he sent his only son, that if Nancy believed, I got it. God supernaturally intervened and brought an understanding and desire that had never been there before. I returned home to Northern Maine and immediately set out to find a church. I was seven and I knocked on doors and interviewed pastors until I found the right one. Each week I walked to church and read my Bible and prayed. I prayed for many things, but mostly I prayed that when I grew up, I'd have a normal family. One where it was obvious who the mother and father were and which children belonged. I never wanted my children to struggle over the simple question of mother's name or number of siblings. My grandparents and I eventually moved to Southern Maine where I lived among my father's family. I still only saw him maybe once a year and I never saw my mother even though she lived a few miles away. I was surrounded by my cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles, none of whom had ever been to college and most hadn't even graduated from high school. Many were into drugs and alcohol and other unhelpful activities. Lots had babies in their teens. There were all kinds of abuse going on. But God protected me from all this chaos and messiness. He gave me different desires and filled my life with people who actually helped to give me guidance and encouragement. Somehow I made it into Princeton and got involved with a student ministry where I was mentored and taught the Bible. It was there that I met my future husband, and it was there that the prayer of a seven-year-old girl was answered. One time, a friend from college introduced me to her mother-in-law and told her the story of my upbringing. This woman said to me, isn't it great what a good education can do? You're here at Princeton. I was floored. I couldn't believe she thought education had brought me out of the mess of my background. Education would have never kept me off drugs and out of inappropriate relationships. My cousins all attended the same schools I did. We all came from the same genes. The difference is God. God, not education, saved me. There's so many things that uh, connected, connected with me personally as I read and also watched Nancy's story. And you, know, you think about 
you know, that last line, education didn't save me, it was God. And then you think about a seven-year-old who goes <laughs> door to door knocking to interview pastors. That's a whole different level of seeking God, right? You have a story. And it has the potential to be epic. If. If. If God is a hero. You see, when God becomes hero, when he becomes king, when you take a step off your throne and say, God, you're, you're in your rightful seat. It becomes about him. Your life becomes about him. And the trajectory of your life starts to shift. And your story in God's hands, now that's epic. Because your story in God's hands, oh, what God can do in you and through you. You see, my wife and I are here today in large part because we heard Nancy's story. And through Nancy's story, we realized that this was bigger than just a church in New Jersey. This was a movement of God that started many, many years ago. As a seven-year-old girl walked around town. You see, those are the stories that only God writes. And I want you to know, God wants to write a story within you that's epic. So this week, here's a question I just want you to, to wrestle with. Who is the hero of your story? Truly, who is? Is it you? Or is it God? And the step out of that question is just to seek God. Remember, seeking God is just this intentional step to set your heart and mind on God. Doesn't mean that you have all the questions answered. Doesn't mean you don't have doubts. Doesn't mean that you can frame everything that you're processing intellectually and within your heart. But it's this conscious decision to say, you know what? I'm going to seek God. It's what Josiah did. He didn't have the questions. You're going to see this revealed over the next weeks, especially next week. You're going to see it revealed. But he took a step just to intentionally say, with my heart and with my mind, I'm going to seek God. Ask yourself that question, who's a hero? And start this week, intentionally, wherever you find yourself spiritually, to make a conscious decision to seek God. After service today, uh, Pastor Rich and I will be down here, and uh, we just want to be available. If you have questions about anything shared today, or maybe you just have something going on in your life that you want to be prayed with or for, um, we just want to be available. So uh, we'll be down there. Uh, and uh, let me pray for, for all of you. Lord, I thank you for our time today. And Lord, to think through Josiah's story and to think through Nancy's story and that powerful moment to take a step to seek you. And Lord, I know there's obstacles in the way of people right now to seek you. I know that there's a lot to that journey, but Lord, I just pray. 
Because your scripture is so clear that when we seek you, we will find you. We will. In your name I pray. Amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.